Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Officials at the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola have kept some prisoners in disciplinary segregation longer than the prison's disciplinary protocols call for, leading to a hunger strike starting last week among several people incarcerated at the prison who say they have been locked in their cells for over 23 hours a day, being let out only to shower. On Monday afternoon, the Louisiana Department of Corrections confirmed that there were three people still on hunger strike at the prison and also confirmed that the prisoners had been held in disciplinary segregation past the amount of time that was determined by the disciplinary sanctions matrix for the rules infraction that they had violated. Ken Pastorik, a spokesperson for the DOC, stated that there is not adequate bed space immediately available to move inmates out of the disciplinary segregation unit. All they're saying is, we ain't got nowhere to put you, said Frederick Ross, one of the prisoners involved in the strike. Because of that, I'm being punished. Eight people in the prison who said they stopped eating the morning of Wednesday, February 17th, said that they were being held after the time designated for their punishment. Some, such as Ross, were being held for months past when they were supposed to be let off the tier, others for weeks. We're being held here over our time, said Donald Hensley, who is 54 years old, illegally, with no yard calls, no exercise, no sunshine, no clothing, no nothing. As winter storms overwhelmed Texas last week, thousands of incarcerated people in the state went days without heat and water, making already grim conditions behind bars even more intolerable. After the state's electrical grid failed, at least 33 prisons across the state lost power and 20 lost potable and running water. Staff shortages compounded the problem, and inmates reported overflowing toilets, inedible food, and not being provided with blankets to keep warm in their freezing cells. Texas prison conditions have gone from bad to dire, says Marshall Project reporter Carrie Blackinger. Prisons didn't really have the sort of infrastructure going into all of this that many people do in the free world. Malik Washington, who you've likely heard on previous episodes of the show, asked us to air this segment about the repression he's currently facing. It originally aired on Berkeley radio station KPFA. After being incarcerated for some 13 years, Malik Washington transferred from prison to 111 Taylor Street in San Francisco, a transitional reentry facility that is run by Geo Group, a corporation that runs around 118 facilities, including prisons, processing centers, and reentry centers. Washington got a job as a journalist that he was passionate about and was in seemingly good standing until he learned of and spoke about a COVID outbreak at the facility. Washington has since filed a lawsuit against the Federal Bureau of Prisons and against the GEO Group for an alleged violation of his First Amendment rights. Richard Tan is the attorney for Malik Washington. 
Malik is the editor of the San Francisco Bayview newspaper. And uh, he started in that job uh, back in September. And, uh, you know, he's been working as the editor um, all during this time. When he started his position at the Bayview by a private prison contract, essentially a private prison uh, in the middle of the Tenderloin, the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, um, allows prisoners to, uh, I think, six months before their release date to go into um, pre-release status, um, which allows them to like, transfer to a halfway house, a minimum security facility where they can reintegrate into the community and uh, also you know, work as part of the, you know, the conditions of their pre-release. And that's what you know, Malik was permitted to do. He was permitted to serve as the editor of the paper, which includes you know, reporting, fundraising, doing administrative work. Um, and, you know, at least as, you know, our position is that Malik uh, had an understanding that he would be permitted to conduct press conferences, um, interviews, and attend events um, around the Bay Area as part of being the editor. Starting January 8th, um, a COVID outbreak starts at the Taylor Street facility. A memo gets distributed to a lot of the uh, facility residents, it's not a confidential memo. And Malik speaks with a number of individuals, including uh, Tim Redmond, who's the editor of the blog 48 Hills, um, and lets him know that there's a COVID outbreak going on. And uh, at the same time, the San Francisco Bayview also publishes a press release um, stating that a COVID outbreak is happening at the facility. And then Tim Redmond emails executives over at the GEO Group asking about this COVID outbreak. Obviously, the GEO Group knows that something is up once, you know, Tim starts questioning them. And initially, they deny that the COVID outbreak is taking place. And then immediately after that, they retaliate against Malik. Um, you know, they, they uh, confiscate his cell phone. They stop him from going to a press conference that he was scheduled to go to. And then they also informed him that before he speaks to any members of the press, um, he needs to obtain authorization from the Bureau of Prisons, um, as well as the GEO Group. Those are the events that led to Malik filing the lawsuit. Since Malik filed the lawsuit, they've imposed additional charges on him. They've actually charged him with escape. Escape could potentially lead to Malik being transferred out of the Taylor Street facility and being put back uh, into jail. So just to be clear that we have an understanding of this, Malik is released to this transitional home. And while there, part of the idea is to reintegrate into society and to find employment, get back on your feet. So he does this and in a job as a journalist. And then he finds out that there's a COVID outbreak and shares it with somebody who covers it. And then he's told he can no longer speak to the press. And he, in a sense, is the press, right? So this is very complicated. Exactly, right. Despite Washington having permission to work at the San Francisco Bayview newspaper as the editor, the Department of Justice now claims that his work permit did not allow him to be outside of the office to do such things as attend press conferences. This, Tan says, is a form of retaliation. You know, the Department of Justice has filed their opposition to our motion. We're seeking an injunction, you know, ending all disciplinary charges against Malik. And in the opposition, they claim that Malik was always subject to a condition that he never be outside of the Bayview offices in any in any way. He was entitled to publish, you know, uh, articles in the Bayview but not entitled to be outside of the Bayview offices. And they claim that this is one of the conditions of his employment. 
And the letter that they use as evidence after it simply says, your employment will start on September 3rd or something like that. It, do, it doesn't specify what the scope of what Malik is permitted to do is. Um, I mean, we do know that Malik has published for months, you know, without any adverse action against him. Um, he's also appeared in public at rallies as the editor, um, and the GEO group knew about this, and they didn't retaliate against him in the past. They only elected to retaliate against him, um, you know, we're alleging, after he broke a story about the COVID outbreak. So um, it's really, you know, there's no document or anything saying Malik is, you know, able to do A, B, and C, but not D. But, you know, they've never had any problem with him publishing. Um, they only have problems when he talks about a COVID outbreak. Nube Brown is Malik Washington's partner, and she's also the managing editor at the San Francisco Bayview newspaper. He had written for eight years to the Bayview. His articles are in that newspaper. We're talking about censoring journalism and making it dangerous for other people to speak to someone who is doing his work, right? So that should be something that we as community members should be outraged about. We rely on the press and especially the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. This is a newspaper that provides a platform for the people's voices to be heard. Brown says that Malik Washington had struggled with addiction issues in the past and had requested to be put in a drug treatment program when he arrived at 111 Taylor Street. We celebrated his sobriety, 13 years of sobriety in October, October 7th. In September, when he arrived, he had asked to be put into a, a drug treatment program to make sure that he would to, would stay sober because 111 Taylor Street facility that is owned by GEO is smack dab in the middle of the tenderloin. And the first thing that he saw when he got out of the car were people on the street, sitting on the sidewalks, people shooting up. So he wanted to take care of himself. They denied him the very thing that he felt like he needed to make sure stepping out every day into the free world with with that being being faced. That's saying we actually don't care about your your care. When we think about why does recidivism happen and why do people fall back? And I wonder why this transitional home is right smack in the middle of this particular neighborhood. Geo Group is a for profit prison organization. Right. They make money by having those people in their clutches. And as a matter of fact, there is a number. It is $19,000 a month that they receive to have Malik and the others caged in their system. So your theory is it's kind of built into the system. It's in their profit interest. If people recidivate is what you're of saying. Of course. And of course, or they just want to keep them there. Malik is outspoken. He has every right to speak. It's not as if he's in jail for liable. Brown says she's hoping for justice for Malik Washington, but also for the future of journalism and for the future of the San Francisco Bayview newspaper, which she says is a bridge connecting people who are incarcerated to the outside world. We are a voice for the prisoners inside. To learn more about Malik Washington's case, you can visit sfbayview.com. This week, Perilous Chronicle spoke with Corey Cardinal, an Indigenous activist imprisoned at the Saskatoon Correctional Center in Saskatchewan, Canada. 
Corey says that this week he was sent to solitary confinement after he organized a protest at the prison. The protest involved collecting and sending out more than a dozen testimonies from prisoners about their experiences with COVID-19 at the facility. In a public statement, Corey explained the purpose of the declarations. Quote, contrary to the public statements made by the ministry that inmates had adequate health care and that the inmates' health was at the top of the ministry's agenda, the inmates at the provincial correctional centers feel that the public has the right to know the truth behind the attempts to minimize and deny the handling of the COVID-19 outbreak in the provincial correctional centers. Unquote. Cardinal also expressed his solidarity with Kimberly Squirrel, a 34-year-old native woman and mother of six who froze to death in January, just three days after being released from Pine Grove Correctional Center near Prince Albert. According to Kimberly's sister, Kara Squirrel, Kimberly's family was not notified of her release and she did not get the care she needed when she was turned out into the bitter Canadian winter. The organization Inmates for Humane Conditions is raising money to support prisoners in Saskatchewan during the pandemic, including offering transportation to those released in hopes of preventing another death like Kimberly. I'm in segregation. It's full of uh, every every inmate in here is young Aboriginal men. Um, there's people sleeping on the floors, overcrowding issues in segregation. It was a worthwhile sacrifice. I was in the dorm that was originally ground zero of the infection, um, overcrowded uh, in the dorms here. And it, I was learning from all the inmates in there uh, what happened. Every single inmate in there, right after the, uh, I got moved and right after I sent those letters to Christine Tell that she ignored uh, November 17th and then the outbreak happened and every single inmate in there got sick, all of them. And uh, contrary to what was said in the media, about how they had adequate health care and they had uh, mental health, they had adequate and their health was at the top of the ministry's agenda. It's all based on lies because what happened was they just shut the door, the doors on the inmates. They left inmates in there to get sick. There were several inmates that uh, tested negative and then they were just left amongst the ones that were positive. They didn't have access to doctors. There was not even a doctor in the jail. They just shut the door and they were talking with the inmates through food slots. They weren't just mild symptoms, what was reported in the media. These inmates had, like, they were coughing up blood. One inmate had uh, fluid in his lungs. They were, like, asking to see the doctor and the, the nurses were just dismissive saying, oh, the doctor doesn't see COVID people because you guys are going to be okay. And they said, uh, yeah, you guys will see the doctor. You, uh, we're going to give you a phone to talk to the doctor, which never happens. So I organized another protest. The inmates requested that they, they felt that the public had a right to know how they were treated. So I got them all to write letters, and then we did another email protest. We had a vote on the units. I was elected inmate rep on the unit. So all the inmates uh, voted that uh, they wanted this course of action. So again, I used my platform to do another email protest and then they wanted another hunger strike because of some other issues with the staff, uh, racism with the staff. So that's what happened. And this was February 16th, I think. Um, all the letters got sent out and I subsequently got hauled off the unit, put in handcuffs, and brought down to segregation where here I am right now. I made several attempts following their internal uh, processes to try to uh, form another dialogue with the DDOs, which was unsuccessful. So just the communication wasn't there. Um, it's not like I just went 
and took the course of action without going, you know, like demanding the fuck DDOs with threats of, you know, whatever they think that I was trying to advocate for. But it, I went through there, I sent requests, I went through the normal mechanisms, I talked, I was the inmate rep, I talked to uh, the liaison officer to to talk to the DDOs to come on a unit, which uh, was denied. So I took their avenues, their mechanisms to try to form a dialogue, which was met with absolute attitudes and stuff, right? So it was the last resort of action. So yeah, here I am. And it was the worthwhile sacrifice. I think the inmates, the, all their letters were heard by the public and we're releasing them again to make sure they go to the appropriate people that would be interested in hearing the actual truth of how inmates are treated that's not edited by the Ministry of Corrections. The campaign right now is to raise money for the girls in Pine Grove. Kimberly Squirrel had no support when she got out. She died. There was no support. She died a, a cold, lonely death, which should have never happened. If they would have been following... The, the, the recommendations, missing and murdered, which have been ignored, this would never happen. They would have worked with her to get in, her in touch with organizations that would support her when she was getting released. They would have supported her, you know, but she died on the streets. She froze to death, so I'm raising funds right now to, to help those girls in Pine Grove. And I'm asking anybody out there to donate to to my inmate support fund. I'm on a hunger strike right now to raise funds right now for those girls in Pine Grove that's desperately needed and it's towards a good cause. It's 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 to help girls with inflated canteen prices. They're they're vulnerable over there for phone calls so they could phone their 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 families because Kimberly Squirrel didn't uh I'm guessing she didn't have enough support to get a hold of her family. So we don't want this to happen again. There's, you know, it's, it's time to step up for, for people, for, for our women, for our vulnerable. You can learn more about Kimberly Squirrel and find a link to donate to the Inmates for Humane Conditions fundraiser in our show notes. And now we air the first part of a conversation about a North Dakota activist who was released Monday after nearly three weeks in jail for refusing to testify before a federal grand jury, Steve Martinez, an Indigenous and Chicano activist who participated in the protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline on the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota in 2016, was held in the Burley County Detention Center in Bismarck, North Dakota, on charges of civil contempt of court for his refusal. In order to learn more about Steve's situation, Perilous Chronicle editor Ryan Fatika spoke with Lauren Regan, lead attorney and executive director of the Civil Liberties Defense Center in Oregon, Oregon, who has spent many years of her life dedicated to defending those facing charges for their participation in social movements. Our segment this week focuses primarily on another water protector, Sophia Walansky. Lauren is representing Walansky, a Standing Rock protester who's suing law enforcement for injuries she sustained during a protest on the Backwater Bridge at Standing Rock in 2016 and has been following the grand jury proceedings closely. We're here today to talk about the case of Steve Martinez. Steve is a former Standing Rock protester, and he was recently subpoenaed to a federal grand jury in North Dakota. 
He's refusing to testify, and he's being held in custody. Tell us a little more about his case. Yeah, so this is actually the second time that Steve has been uh, subpoenaed to a federal grand jury in North Dakota. The first time was, I think, back in December of 2018, I believe. Um, And at that time, he showed up and consistent with his ethical and moral beliefs regarding non-cooperation with the federal government, um, he asserted his First and Fifth Amendment rights to not uh, testify at that grand jury. And the U.S. Attorney's Office at that time basically just let him go and appeared to shut down um, the grand jury, the federal grand jury. And in the two years since then, we have really heard nothing um, about this grand jury or about any kind of alleged investigation, et cetera, et cetera. And um, a few months ago, the federal court in the case of Sophia Walansky versus Morton County et al., uh, the federal judge finally, after a couple of years, ruled that her case was allowed to move forward and that discovery was allowed to begin against Martin County and uh, the the government, the state in general. And soon thereafter, apparently, Mr. Martinez um, received a federal grand jury subpoena for January 4th, I think it was, maybe February 4th. might be getting my dates messed up, but um, I think it was February 4th. And right around that same time period, Morton County served a civil deposition subpoena on him for the very next day. So he had a federal subpoena to appear to a grand jury on one day and then a civil subpoena to appear on behalf of these defendants in Sophia's case the next day. And all along, we've had our suspicions that Martin County and the federal government, the FBI in particular, have been kind of colluding with each other to withhold evidence and information in their possession with regard to the injuries that Sophia uh, sustained on the Backwater Bridge. Lauren, let me interrupt you there and take us back a little bit for our listeners. Perhaps we should have begun the discussion with the case of Sophia Walansky. Sophia is a young woman who was injured during a protest at Standing Rock in November 2016. And in response to her injuries, she's filed a federal civil suit against the Morton County Sheriff's Office and various other law enforcement bodies and individuals. You're representing Sophia in that in that civil suit. That case is linked in some way to the federal grand jury that's now holding Steve Martinez in custody. Is that correct? Yes, which of course the government is you know, entirely denying, but that we, you know, believe is undeniable. So, yeah, so in 
So the nature of Sophia's case, I guess, you know, this is kind of important maybe for the context. So Sophia, um, you know, had traveled to Standing Rock to be in solidarity with the indigenous-led water protectors, and she was, you know, there basically for a couple of weeks to be present and to, you know, be part of history and to support um, the resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline. And one night, you know, there was basically a call for activists to, for water protectors to go out to the bridge. And she went out with others and sort of witnessed law enforcement using quote-unquote, less lethal munitions like rubber bullets and tear gas and pepper spray and water cannons on the water protectors. This was like November 20th of 2016. Then things kind of died down, and she left and went back to camp um, and got some food and warmed up and got dry, warm clothes on. And around uh, like 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, hours later, she decided to go back up on the bridge to see what was going on. And when she went back up on the bridge, everything was kind of wrapping up. Uh, water protectors were cleaning up trash and stuff from the bridge. People were sledding because the water cannons had kind of caused an icy situation. And, you know, everything was pretty mellow at that time. And Sophia basically took a turn in kind of holding vigil on the bridge, replaced a couple of other water protectors that had been standing behind this sort of like makeshift shield. And at some point, the cops that, you know, had been kind of like, you know, eating donuts and hanging out for themselves behind the barricade said something like, get out from, made an announcement that was something like, get out from underneath the truck. And Sophia was not under the truck, so she did not think that this address was coming at her. And all of a sudden, law enforcement began shooting munitions toward her location. And at one point, she is, you know, kind of struck um, in one of her arms, so it kind of suffers a painful injury that she still has a scar from today. And she basically decides that she can't stay there any longer. And so she yells to the police, please don't shoot me, I'm leaving, and kind of starts to leave from behind this truck when all of a sudden law enforcement launches an explosive device, most likely a flashbang grenade, at her and it explodes on her arm and basically blows her arm off. She thought she had lost her hand. And she immediately falls down and is screaming. And, you know, a handful of water protectors rush to her, pick her up, and rush her to a vehicle that had been cleaning up stuff on the bridge. And Steve Martinez had been assisting that vehicle the person that owned the vehicle had locked the keys accidentally inside it. And so Steve was helping that person to try to get into the vehicle so they could move it off the bridge. And they, you know, get the vehicle open. And here comes these people, you know, carrying this woman who is in danger of dying. You know, she is bleeding very badly and is going into shock. And Steve basically 
drives this vehicle with Sophia and another person um, who's kind of like rendering aid to her and drives them off the bridge. And as he's driving, he is calling the BIA and an ambulance to meet them at the casino so that she can be attended by trauma medics, basically. And so he drives the car that ultimately is responsible for saving her life. This interview was recorded last week before Steve was released from jail. Although Steve is now free, his challenges are far from over. Look for updates on Steve's case from the Water Protector Legal Collective at waterprotectorlegal.org and from Perilous Chronicle at perilouschronicle.com and on this show. We'll air more of the conversation next week. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.